0: The reading today is from 2 Corinthians 9, and it's on page 1150 in your few Bibles. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying in that saying that A- Acacia oh. oh. has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may be abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever.
1: Thanks, Debbie. Let's uh, pray God's help as we think about the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your commitment to not only instruct us, but transform us by your written word as you proclaim to us the word made flesh, your son, Jesus Christ, Christ the King. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us not only understand this passage, but apply it in our lives, no matter... Uh, what point in the journey of faith we currently find ourselves, that this would be a time where we take steps towards you and greater love and obedience to you, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, First things first, last Sunday after the service, the elders and the deacons uh, had lunch together uh, downstairs, and during the conversation, several of them mentioned that they'd never heard of Skoda cars, Uh, which were the subject of uh, some jokes I told uh, that morning. I'm not gonna repeat those jokes now. For those of you who missed them, you'll just have to go and listen or watch the sermon from last week. And then someone said, you know, you really should have put a picture of a Skoda up on the screen, and then we would have known something about what you were talking about. And I said, well, actually I had put a picture Uh, to go on the screen but the computer crashed during the sermon and so it didn't appear and the sermon is planned but we are a full service church and so (laughs) just to make up for last week here's what I was talking about as I said last week Skoda uh, a Czech car maker uh, have sort of got their act together since then they make decent cars now but not in the 1970s so got that out of the way that's all I'm going to say about that. Today, we're finishing up our uh, series, uh, This Is Us. We've been thinking about what does it mean to be the church, and we're concluding a sort of mini two-part series within that series as we come towards the end of our stewardship campaign, uh, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as we did last week, and chapter 9, as we are doing so today. Uh, Back in 2007, I was preaching on these two chapters uh, together, in my previous church in Dublin, Ireland. And I, uh, I titled the sermon, then Putting the Fun Back into Fundraising. That's probably not my greatest ever sermon title, uh, but the title actually did come back to my mind uh, when I was reading a little while ago, a book by Henry Nouwen, uh, which was called A Spirituality of Fundraising. Henry Nouwen was an internationally renowned Uh, author, professor, pastor, originally from Holland, but uh, lived half of his life here in the States, died in 1996. Uh, He's perhaps best known to some of us as as the uh, author of the classic work, The Return of the Prodigal Son. But in his book on the spirituality of fundraising, Nouwen begins with the common perception that fundraising is, quote, a necessary but unpleasant activity to support spiritual things. However, Nouwen's passion for ministry and for living from a spiritual motivation in all things led him to go deeper until he could say with conviction, quote, "Fundraising is first and foremost a form of ministry. It is as spiritual as giving a sermon, entering a time of prayer, visiting the sick, or feeding the hungry." End quote. And I suspect that the apostle Paul would have given a hearty amen to those words. From now and Here in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul is building uh, uh, on the argument that he began in chapter 8 that we were looking at last week, all of which looks back to a fundraising appeal that Paul had made to the Corinthians a year earlier. You may recall from last week, Paul had set up a charitable fund for the Christians in Jerusalem as the church there had been dealing with poverty since the beginning of its existence. This seems to have been partly a result of uh, hostility from the Jewish population there as well as because of a famine in Jerusalem that we read about in the book of Acts. And Paul felt a special obligation to relieve this need and so at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians he had asked the church there to take a weekly offering to go towards that fund. And in 2 Corinthians 8, it seems like uh, Paul indicates that initially the Corinthians had responded well to this. However, in the 12 months since the launch of the fund, their initial enthusiasm definitely seems to have diminished. And as a result, Paul is spending two whole chapters of this letter seeking to motivate the Corinthians to raise the money that they had pledged. But what's interesting here is that Paul's goal of encouraging their fundraising at this point doesn't actually focus on the vision and mission behind that fundraising. He doesn't say to the Corinthians, here's where what your money is going to achieve and therefore you should, you should give. That, and that's not to say, of course, that vision and mission uh, aren't important in fundraising. They absolutely are. We looked at that a little bit last week. Interestingly, indeed, in his book, Henry Nowen mentions an aspect of vision casting that churches often miss when they're seeking uh, to fundraise. He says this, I wonder how many churches realize that community is one of the greatest gifts they have to offer, sort of what uh, Willie and Jean were just saying there. If we ask for money, it means that we offer a new fellowship, a new brotherhood, a new sisterhood, a new way of belonging. We have something to offer, friendship, prayer, peace, love, Fidelity, affection, ministry with those in need. And these things are so valuable that people are willing to make their resources available to sustain them. Fundraising must always aim to create new, lasting relationships. So again, vision and mission are important things for churches to think about at all times, not least during a stewardship campaign. But in these chapters, Paul doesn't look to motivate the Corinthians to give based on vision goals or mission goals. His vision is fixed elsewhere. His vision is fixed actually on grace and specifically on the grace of giving. Chapters eight and nine, Paul mentions this great grace eight times. Here in chapter nine, Paul shapes his discussion on grace to make this point. This is our sermon in a sentence today, that more than wanting something from you, God wants something for you. More than wanting something from you, God wants something for you. We'll think about that uh, through this chapter in three parts. First of all, the two kinds of giving. Secondly, God the giver, not the taker. And thirdly, the harvest of righteousness. More than wanting something from you, God wants something for you. Verses one to five, uh, before Paul gets to the two kinds of giving, which is, will be our first point, he takes care of a few administrative details concerning the collection in Corinth for the sake of for the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, but right on the heels of this housekeeping, he brings up this idea of two kinds of giving. Look at verses five to seven again. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you, And arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. And the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In these three verses, Paul contrasts two kinds of giving. Look with me, first of all, at how he says we are not to give, the bad kind of giving. He gives three descriptions of how not to give, not as an exaction, not sparingly, and thirdly, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And in each case here, the essence of what is wrong in this desire is to hold back. It's not that there's no giving going on, there is giving, but it's coming from a heart that wants to hold back. Firstly, it sees what it has to give as an exaction, as some kind of external compulsion, arm twisting. Paul Paul says Christian giving should not feel like paying your taxes. Earlier this month, the borough of Kennett Square presented the first reading of its 2022 borough budget. And while some people might quibble about some things in such a budget, generally residents are are in favor of improved infrastructure, a well-staffed police force, good roads, etc. But even when we recognize that taxes can pay for good things, most of us really don't like paying taxes. We're not shouting, whoopee, I get to pay my taxes again this year. It's not voluntary, it's an exaction. It's somewhat reluctant giving under compulsion. And Paul says that's not how we are to think when we think of Christian giving. Neither, Paul says, are we to give sparingly. The basketball coach tells the team that for the last two minutes of the game to spare no effort, that she, she means don't hold back. Give all the effort that you can. And Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans that God did not spare his only son. He was saying God did not even hold his son back from, from us. He didn't keep him for, for himself. So to give sparingly is to give from a heart that deep inside wants to hold back, that thinks not in terms of how much can I give, but how much can I keep. And Paul says that's not how to give. In contrast, he says, here's how you are to give. Here's what good giving looks like. Three things willingly, bountifully, and cheerfully. Think for a moment about Paul's farming illustration that he uses here. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I mean, no, no farmer in his right mind considers sowing as a loss of seed for the simple reason that the harvest will provide the seed for the next season. So as he sows, he doesn't begrudge the seed he's casting on the ground or try to scrimp by with sowing as little as possible. He willingly sows all that he can and trusts that God will bless the sowing with a bountiful harvest. the farmer, for whatever reason, cuts back on the sowing, he's going to cheat himself of that harvest. The more he sows, the greater the harvest he will reap, and the more he will have for sowing in the next harvest. And Paul uses this because he's applying it to our financial giving. Actually, the word he uses here, bountifully, could just as well be translated in terms of blessing, in which case the verse would read like this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows with blessings will also reap with blessings. God gives back blessings to those who give as a matter of blessing. So as a general principle, Paul's saying here, those who give grudgingly and little receive a tight-fisted return, while those who, by contrast, give generously and in an open-handed way, receive lavish blessings in return. Now, it's this conviction that God gives bountifully, that his mathematics mean that you have you have more not less when you give more away that leads to his third way to give which is cheerfully god loves a cheerful giver you know there actually aren't that many times in the bible where we're told what god loves we're told what we should love but when it comes to what god loves in the old testament we're told for example that god loves his sanctuary he loves righteous deeds he loves justice He loves the gates of Zion. In the New Testament, we're told that God loves the world, John 3.16. But this instance here is the only time in the New Testament when we're told what God loves, present tense. And look what it is. God loves a cheerful giver. You want the God of the universe to love what you do? Well, here's where you should start. Give cheerfully. Most of us, if we're honest, are cheerful spenders especially when we're spending on ourselves, and now it's all so easy. You just have to press a button on your computer and packages magically appear at your doorstep. Some of you, even more than I can ever imagine you getting. We'll not get into that. Most of us are cheerful spenders, but God loves cheerful givers. As far as God is concerned, it's less about how much you give and more about how you give. Something has happened in your heart So that your basic desire is now to give and to share as much as possible instead of keeping as much as possible it's as if there's a a magnet in your heart that used to be turned in such a way that it would pull possessions towards you but now something has happened in there such that the magnetic poles have switched and now it pushes things out from you towards others and it happens with joy so please hear what paul is saying here god loves for you to be happy in your giving. More than wanting something from you, God wants something for you. So, I mean, try to imagine what the universe would be like if God were not like this. John Piper asked the question this way, what if God were like a father who was basically irritated by happy children? I mean, imagine a child who has a clay ornament uh, makes a clay ornament at school to give to his mother on Christmas Day. He's taken such care making it, painting it, wrapping it, uh, you know, all the preparation. Christmas morning arrives, and he's so excited about giving this gift to his mother, he can hardly sit still. He says, oh, please open this one next, Mommy. Please open this one. And the father snaps him, just shut up and sit still. She'll get to it when she gets to it. Or what, is, what if his joylessness was even worse than that, so great that he said, what are you so excited about? It's just a lump of clay. If God was like that, the universe would just collapse into this black hole of misery and nothingness for us. But God isn't like that. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves when his children are cheerful and happy in their giving. He delights to savor and to see the joy of every gift given and every gift received. God cannot be annoyed or irritated by excessive cheerfulness and giving because there's no such thing as excessive cheerfulness and giving. He loves your enjoyment of being generous. So how are we to give? We're not to give as an exaction or, as, or sparingly or reluctantly or under compulsion. How are we to give? Willingly, bountifully, cheerfully. Now, that God loves a cheerful giver tells us something extremely significant about God, and that, this brings us to Paul's second point here. He tells us that God is the giver, not the taker. Look at verses 8 to 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Let me just read verse 8 to you again in case you missed it the first time. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see what he does here? Paul didn't have the necessary word processing software back then to bold words or italicize words or underline words as I sometimes do on this screen here. So he just has to repeat himself, and that's what he does here, all, all, all. All, all, every. And what he says here is not just for the Corinthians. It's a staggering promise for every follower of Jesus that God is able to make all grace abound to you. Or to put it different, a different way, God is not a taker. He's a giver. Our failure to be generous stems in part from thinking that God is a taker. We think that God, God to be incessantly demanding, asking us to give up this and give up that in this kind of zero-sum-gain world that we live in. So we feel like grasping after that which we can get our hands on in this world to counteract his demands so that we can have what we want and need. We think if God is draining me by all of his demands, well, what, what joy can I have unless I drain the world? If life is being sucked out by a demanding God, then I need to suck in whatever pleasure I can from this world so that our our basic disposition becomes one of taking and keeping and sparing because in our minds, God's always taking. He's always demanding. He's the great taker. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's, That's absolutely wrong. The flow all goes in the other direction. God's the great giver. He's the ever-flowing fountain, one of John Calvin's favorite images of God. God is the ever-flowing fountain, the inexcusable Father, pouring out ever-replenishing blessing and grace and hope and joy. But here's the part we often miss in all of this. At the heart of God's giving, at the heart of his generosity and his blessing, stands a purpose, Paul says. That rather than lavishing believers with expansive expressions of grace so that we can just glut ourselves on God's gift, the resources that God pours into our lives are to be used, as Paul writes here, for every good work. This is not the prosperity gospel here, although it's certainly been abused by prosperity gospel preachers over the years, the idea, you know, send us your seed money and God is going to bless you and make you rich, bigger houses, more cars, nicer clothes, fancy toys. And Paul says the promise isn't give so you can get rich. It's God will give you all that you need in order that you can continue to be generous. God will make sure he will always provide enough for us to be generous. The person who sees God that God is the giver, not the taker, looks at the needs of the world and feels this internal pulse to give, to share out of the grace that that has abounded to him or her from God. And God says, I'll make sure you never run out of that grace. I'll give you what you need so that you can give to others. You will always be rich enough to be generous. No matter what level of income you have, you will always be rich enough to be generous. Because God is the great giver, not the taker. Well, that brings us then thirdly to this harvest of our righteousness, just using this phrase that Paul uses in verse 10. Let me read that verse to you. "He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul again uses a farming analogy here to make the point that God is not only the giver, of the seed that gets sown, but also the one who provides the harvest from the seed. In other words, God gives the resources with which we can be generous, and then he blesses our generosity to provide us with more resources to be even more generous. Paul refers to this blessing as the harvest of your righteousness. Here he says, are the results of your generous giving. And he gives three results here. First is this, it relates to what we just saw. The first aspect of the harvest of our righteousness is that we get an even greater ability to be generous. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way for great generosity. Now, just in general, there is a sense of enrichment that comes from generosity. Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson are the authors of a book called The Paradox of Generosity, which they wrote this by giving ourselves away we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it is sociological fact. They back that up with research that shows that those who give 10% of their, or more of their income, those who volunteer their time, are more likely than others to report being very happy. They also, they also report and demonstrate how generosity actually has health benefits. Those who give more money volunteer their time or are relationally generous are more likely to be in excellent or very good health than others and those who are more generous in these ways also they say report a clearer sense of purpose in their life now I don't think the apostle paul would have any I would have been surprised by any of those findings but for him this idea of re- enrichment that comes from generosity again is for a specific purpose it's to be more generous that's the goal that's why god enriches us The more you give, the more you'll be able to give. And if, as Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive, then you can see what joy and delight in his mind he knows that will bring. And Frankly, Paul's approach here to generosity, encouraging generosity, is so different from what we often hear. But I think we need to hear what Paul says about this. A few years ago, a study was published that showed while Americans have have experienced significant income growth over the last 50 years, that during that same period of time, the average giving in evangelical churches has dropped from 5.98% to 3.21% of those ever-growing incomes. That as Christians in this country, we've generally overall earned more, but given less. So maybe instead of seeing our giving as some sort of duty or as possibly offering us a tax break or as an opportunity for self-fulfillment or as an expression of some sort of indebtedness to society, we should heed Paul's encouragement that through our giving, the God who gives will enrich our lives in every way. Paul's teaching on giving is not intended to make you miserable. It's not intended to load you with guilt. God wants to make you happy. He wants to make you free. He doesn't want you to be generous so that he can take things away from you. He wants you to be generous so that he can give you more. More joy, more contentment, more fruitfulness, more seed for sowing so that you can experience the blessing of even greater generosity. The second aspect of this harvest of our righteousness is appropriately for this week greater thanksgiving to god look at verses 11 to 13 you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to god for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to god by their approval of this service they will glorify god because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Generous giving results in God getting more thanks. In verse 13, Paul's essentially saying the same thing. People will glorify God as a result of our obedience to the gospel expressed in our our generosity. And that makes sense, right? When, When people see that you're generous, they'll recognize that, Your confession of faith is genuine that you really believe the gospel you put your money where your mouth is reality is that what we we uh, do with our money says an awful lot about the state of our hearts our credit card statements our bank statements are some of the best indicators of what it is we truly truly love because our spending and our giving either make god look valuable and trustworthy and precious or they make him look undependable and stingy when our giving shows god to be as great and generous and gracious as he really is he receives much thanksgiving and glory the third aspect of the harvest of our righteousness is an increased love among god's people look at verses 13 to 14 by their approval of this service they will glorify god because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. It creates this increased love among God's people. Henry Nouwen expresses this aspect of the harvest in a lovely way in his book. He says this, when those with money and those who need money share a mission, we see a central sign of new life in the spirit of Christ. We belong together in our work because Jesus has brought us together and our fruitfulness depends on staying connected with him. Therefore, those who need money and those who can give money meet on the common ground of God's love. More than wanting something from you, God wants something for you. In the harvest of our righteousness, God gives us an even greater ability to be generous, greater thanksgiving to God, increased love among God's people, Paul concludes this chapter with this explosive doxology, verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's such a, a great way to finish the chapter, but it does leave us with a question, what exactly is the gift that Paul is referring to here? And the commentators are actually divided on this. Some think that Paul is referring to the encouraging picture of generous and loving unity between the Gentile Christians in Corinth and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Others see the gift as God's grace at work amongst the Macedonians and the Corinthians, which has prompted their generosity. I I would lean, however, with those who think that Paul is talking about something more basic and more glorious than those things. And the clue, I think, is in the, the previous verse when Paul writes this, verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Paul has used this word surpassing a few other times already in 2 Corinthians. For example, in chapter 3, verse 10, he refers to the surpassing glory of the new covenant. In chapter 4, verse 16, he writes of the surpassing greatness of the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. In other words, for Paul to describe something as surpassing was to describe it as part of the stunning new reality of what Jesus has brought about through the new covenant, by way of his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection, defeating sin and death. And here in chapter 9, the ink is barely dry on the words, the surpassing grace of God upon you before Paul writes, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The gift seems to be God's glorious, redemptive work for us through his Son. Or indeed, it could actually be that Paul is speaking of Jesus himself as the ultimate gift, the one who, as one commentator translates it, is too wonderful for words. And in that sense, there's no better note on which Paul could end this chapter, indeed, these two chapters, because Paul's whole point is that it's God's grace that is the basis of Christian giving. Paul's call to willing, Bountiful, cheerful giving is not a call for you and me to reach down deep within our beings and rise to the best version of ourselves, as people seem to talk about today. No, it's a call to respond in true belief and repentance to God's grace revealed in Christ. It's a call to gaze upon and meditate on and contemplate Christ's giving of himself on the cross as the model for our giving, just as Paul described In chapter 8, as we saw last week, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So this is not a call to some kind of legalistic obedience or observance. It's not a call to giving out of coercion or guilt. It's a call to grace. As Paul's repeated mentions of grace in these chapters emphasize, the grace of God, the grace of taking part in the relief, complete among you this act of grace, excel in this act of grace, for you know the grace. As we carry out this act of grace, God is able to make all grace abound to you, the surpassing grace of God. Paul's appeal to generous giving is not a call to rise to the best that is within us. It's a call to rise to his best within us. It's not a call to save ourselves, but to demonstrate by our giving how much we delight in God and his grace to us in saving us. Because more than wanting something from you, our gracious God wants something for you. And if you receive it, it actually does put the fun back into fundraising. So for the final time, my friends in this series, this is us. Let's pray. Father, this is such a upside down or right side up revolutionary way to think of our possessions, our money, our finances, because it's not the way that this world wants us to think about it. It's not the way that many of us have Have learned about it, but it's the way that you have taught us. You are the giver, you are not a taker, you are a God who delights to pour abundantly into our lives so that we might pour abundantly into the lives of others. Lord, we thank you that you love, you love a cheerful giver. Help us. become that if we're not that help us to grow in that if we're weak in that help us to delight in giving knowing what has been given to us through you by your son we pray this in jesus name amen